All right, let's turn in our Bibles to Mark's Gospel, chapter 11. Mark's Gospel, chapter 11, opens up with a, an event that takes place five days before the cross. So now we are in the final week of Jesus' life on the earth before the cross. And this section is basically entitled The Triumphal Entry. Uh, we're going to see that it was less than a triumphal entry as we progress through the study tonight. But I want, you to, I want you to see the background. I want you to see what's not here. And that is that the excitement that has been building in the disciples uh, and in Palestine uh, during the course of Jesus' ministry, which is leading up to this moment. Again, you have to remember, put yourself in their place for a minute. All their lives... The Jews were taught from the time they were just little children that someday Messiah was going to come. And when he came, he would release the Jews from, at that time, Roman oppression. He would establish a glorious kingdom on the earth. He would reign from Jerusalem, and all the Jews would be his prime ministers, his special people. There would be a time of peace, prosperity, health, and plenty. It would be a utopia, a Garden of Eden-like state on the earth. This is what they live for. This is what sustained them many times. And now here he is. Many believe Jesus is Messiah. Of course he was. But he had a following. And they had left everything, as Peter said, Lord, but what about us? We have left everything to follow you. And Jesus basically said to him, you won't be disappointed, Peter. But they were looking now. They were really getting excited because... It was coming, they believed. There was an anticipation and an expectancy in the air that was, was everywhere. And they know that he's now coming to Jerusalem. In fact, he's, he's in Jerusalem. This opens up chapter 11. He's in, actually in Bethany to start the day. But, you know, he's now in the area. You have to keep that in the back of your mind when you read this section. Everything has been building. Now, uh, we get a more detailed account of what happens during this time we call the triumphal entry from combining all four of the Gospels together. So we'll kind of try to piece them together as we go along because we get a full picture by looking at all four Gospels. But you have to understand too that the events of chapter 11 of John's Gospel helped to greatly fuel, to greatly set in motion the events of the triumphal entry. John chapter 11 deals with the death and resurrection of Lazarus. And you have to understand that that was a phenomenal thing. Of course it was. But for people who were looking to Jesus to be Messiah, and one of the things that Messiah was going to do uh, was to, of course, heal the sick and uh, feed the hungry and uh, do all kinds of things which Jesus Christ has been doing. Remember when the disciples of John came to Jesus? John was imprisoned and uh, John the Baptist, and he told his disciples to go to Jesus and say, Are you the Messiah, or should we look for another? And Jesus told John's disciples, You go back and tell John that, what, the lame walk, the, the dumb speak, the deaf hear, the people are raised from the dead, and so on and so forth. See, he was saying, Look, John, I'm the Messiah because of the works that I'm doing. See, Messiah was supposed to do certain works to confirm who he was. Jesus did those works, but... The raising of Lazarus from the dead was pretty spectacular. I mean, here's a guy who was dead and then buried for four days. Now, that was pretty phenomenal. Jesus Christ and raising Lazarus really began now to set in motion the events that would eventually cause this 
this kingdom fever to reach its climax. And that's what was going on here. Kingdom fever had hit the Jews, see? And it was on the rise. And with Lazarus being raised from the dead, it really began to heat up. In fact, it spread like wildfire all throughout the area that Jesus had raised the man and was dead for four days. And that caused everyone in the area to say, this must be the Messiah. Who could do that but Messiah? I mean, it was really out there. And they were excited because, remember now, it's Passover time. John tells us that it's five day, it's um, uh, six days from Passover. As John 11 opens up, it was, or John 12, it was six days from Passover. Of course, what better time for Messiah to deliver his people out of the hands of the Romans than at Passover? The very feast that commemorates Moses delivering God's people out of the hands of the Egyptians. So they're thinking, this is perfect. This must be it. I mean, it all fits, right? Here he is. I mean, it's Passover time. The day we celebrate Moses delivering the Jews from us from the Egyptians, and now the Messiah is going to come to deliver us out of the hands of the Romans. And didn't Moses prophesy in Deuteronomy 18 that someday God was going to raise up another prophet like unto him who would tell his people the word of God and kind of be a deliverer? And so they were thinking, this is it. He's the one. As I said, it was Passover time. And Passover was one of the three main Jewish feasts of the year that, that the, God had commanded in the law that all able-bodied Jews, Jewish men, who lived 15 miles from Jerusalem were to attend. The three main feasts were the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which encompassed three feasts. Uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was technically three feasts rolled into one. You had the Feast of Passover, which took place on the 14th of Nisan, on the very next day, the 15th of Nisan, you had the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which ran for seven days. And during that seven-day period, you obviously had a Sunday, and that would be the Feast of First Fruits, because it says in the law, on the Sabbath during this seven-day period of Unleavened Bread, the next day would be the Feast of First Fruits. It was all kind of rolled up into one thing called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, but it encompassed those three feasts. That took place sometime in uh, late March, early April. Then 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits, you had what was called the Feast of Weeks, otherwise known as the Feast of Pentecost. And that was also a main Jewish feast that the Jews were required to come to, you know, if they were within that distance at all. The final feast they were required to attend was the Feast of Tabernacles, which took place in the fall, around September. And uh, that was also a, a, a seven-day feast. And uh, in fact, I think it also actually was an eight-day feast. Uh, but it was a very holy time. And these were the three main feasts that the Jews were required by law to attend uh, if they were uh, 20 and above and lived within 15 miles of the city of Jerusalem. Of course, of course, many others came who lived much farther beyond 15 miles. In fact, Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that at this time, the city of Jerusalem would swell to between two and three million people who would converge on the city from all over the known world to celebrate the feast of Passover. In fact, it was the most loved and most attended feast of the three major feasts. 
And so the city just mushroomed. It just ballooned. And of course, they all couldn't stay in the city. There wasn't enough room. So oftentimes, they would stay with other Jews in the surrounding towns and villages who would open up their homes to these Jewish pilgrims, you know. And, and people would just stay with all kinds of people, but just a real kind of a family time as Jews from the, all over the known world would come. Jews all over the area around Jerusalem would open up their homes. And it was a beautiful uh, time of just kind of uh, fellowshipping and just kind of enjoying the Lord and exciting about this very special time of the year. As I said, uh, it would last for eight days. And uh, in the morning, the people would leave the houses that they were staying in, make their way to the city, and they would congregate in the temple area where they would either pray or they would listen to the rabbis teach where they would worship or just fellowship it was just a kind of a celebration type of an atmosphere uh, it was a great time this day however was special it was the 10th of Nizan this day here the 10th of Nizan was the day that the Lord had prescribed in the law that the lambs for the Passover feast were to be presented to the priests to be inspected to make sure they were without, without spot or blemish and thereby would qualify then to be used in the Passover celebration because the lamb that was to be killed for the Passover meal had to be without spot or blemish. We know that. So you had to on the 10th of, of the month of Nizan, four days before the Passover, take your lamb to the priest. They would then look it over real well and if it passed, if it qualified, then they would hold it for you. And then on the 14th, they would slaughter the lambs and give it back to you then to roast. And you would observe the Passover meal with your family. I want you to, to see this in your mind. It's early in the morning. It's the 10th of Nizan. Hundreds of thousands of people are coming from all over the area surrounding Jerusalem, coming to the city, coming to the temple area. And walking along with them are thousands of lambs who are also on their way to Jerusalem to die. And among them is walking the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world, who is also on his way to Jerusalem to present himself to the priest. And finally, of course, it was said, I find no fault in him. Pilate said that. But the Jews themselves said, we can't find anything to accuse this man of, see? So he was spotless, he was sinless, and he went on to be, of course, our Passover lamb, the lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. Now, this day we call Palm Sunday. Jesus got up early that morning, and he began to make his way to Jerusalem, a journey of about a mile and three quarters. And to get there, he would have had to go, because he was staying in Bethany, which was on the eastern slope of the Mount of, of Olives. So he would have to make his way up the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives, down the western slope, across the Kidron Valley, and up through the east gate of the city. That's how he would have to enter the city from that direction. As he left Bethany, and as he approached, and of course a big mob went with him, as he approached the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives, he dispatches two of his disciples. Let's go ahead and read the story. We'll come back and we will um, kind of look at it uh, more closely. Now when they came near Jerusalem to uh, Bethphage and Bethany and the Mount of Olives, he sent out two of his disciples and they said to them, or excuse me, he said to them, go into the village opposite you as soon as you have entered it 
You will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it here. So they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street, and they loosed, uh, loosed it. And some of those who stood there said to them, What are you doing loosing the colt? So they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded, and they let them go. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their garments on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees. Luke tells us they were palm branches. Uh, and spread them on the road. And those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. And so when he had looked around at all these things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So Jesus leaves Bethany and he approaches the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. He sends two of his disciples to a nearby village to get, actually the other gospels tell us it was a, a, a mother and her young colt. There was two. Both of them were brought to Jesus. Jesus sat on the colt on the, the donkey's foal, but uh, it was actually two that were there tied up. And, and people say, well, was this prearranged? You know, did Jesus go ahead and arrange in advance what was going to happen here? Or was it something totally supernatural? Uh, take your pick. Uh, maybe a little of both. I don't know. I mean, maybe uh, the man who owned the donkey was, uh, uh, was a follower of Christ. Maybe he knew of Jesus. And Jesus, by his omniscience, knew that he had, uh, you know, the donkeys tied by his house there in the street. Uh, and Jesus dispatched his disciples, who when they unloosed the donkeys, maybe neighbors said, what are you doing? And they said, look, the master has need of it. They knew immediately it was Jesus. And so they just said, fine. You know, we don't really know. And again, I don't think it's all that important. We know that they were there. And we know that Jesus, whether he had it prearranged or whether it was a total act of his omniscience, just knowing just because he's God that they were there and that supernaturally just worked it out where they let the, the mother and her foal go with the disciples. We don't know. But we do know they untied them and they brought them to Jesus. Now, again, remember that a huge mob had left with Jesus from Bethany. Some of them were his disciples who had followed him down from the Galilee. Many more, obviously, were pilgrims that had come to uh, Bethany for the Passover, you know, had, were staying there for the Passover celebration, and they were leaving the city to come, Bethany to come into Jerusalem for that day, you know, that prayer or activities or, or worship or whatever they were going to do. Uh, I think many others were there because they had heard about Lazarus and were, had come specifically, because again, Jesus was staying at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and Jesus had already raised Lazarus from the dead, and so that created quite a stir. And the word had gone out that this tremendous miracle had happened, and many people came to Bethany just to see Lazarus. And many, it says in John 11, believed when they saw Lazarus, so much so that it says that the chief priests and scribes took counsel not only how to kill Jesus, but also to kill Lazarus again, because, because of him many had come to believe. Now, can you imagine that? Religious men plotting the death of not only an innocent man, their Messiah, no less, 
but another guy who Jesus raises from the dead because this guy's getting so much press and so many people are coming to Christ because of him, they want to kill him too. Lazarus couldn't win for, for anything, I mean, you know. But I think a lot of these people had come to Bethany just to see Lazarus. Now they all left with Jesus. This big mob of people, this big entourage had left with him and as they approached the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives, suddenly the disciples came back. The two donkeys were there. Uh, Jesus chose to sit on the foal, the, col the colt. And that was, of course, by design because in Zechariah chapter 9, Jesus first and foremost was fulfilling prophecy. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, very important prophecy, which says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, or in other words, inhabitants of Jerusalem. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So many centuries earlier, the prophet had prophesied that when Messiah came, he wouldn't come riding on a white stallion like many kings did when they rode into a town. Don't forget, this was a, a king presenting himself for coronation. Think about it. This was Jesus presenting himself as king of the Jews, their Messiah. And he's not coming like any other king has ever come, really. He's coming lowly, you know. He's riding a unbroken... Now, kings would ride on donkeys at times. We'll, find, we'll talk about this in a minute. But Jesus was riding on the foal of a donkey. Uh, a donkey, a, a young colt that had never been ridden on, which was a miracle uh, in and of itself. If you've ever tried to get on an animal that has not been broken, uh, you'll find out. Uh, Jesus, how this animal just so submitted to the God of all creation. Uh, Jesus just sat down in this little unbroken colt and just let him sit there and just took him on up the side there of the eastern side of the Mount of Olives. And as they began to make their way up the Mount of Olives, again, kingdom fever is beginning to now build. Remember, this is the only time in Jesus' ministry that he allowed himself to be publicly proclaimed as king. Remember, there was a couple of times prior to this when he fed some people or did some incredible things. They wanted to take him by force and make him king, but he always slipped out from among them and went his way because he said, my hour has not yet come. Remember he said that often, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come. His hour had come. Very special hour, very specific hour he was waiting for, which fits into another very important prophecy about the coming of the Messiah. We'll talk about that in a second. But uh, this was his hour. And here he comes, and the disciples are sensing something is going on here, something important. He's coming into the city now. He's allowing himself to be proclaimed king. Everyone is cheering. I mean, this big mob that has come from Bethany is with him. I mean, his disciples and people that were there for Passover and, and, and other people that had seen Lazarus who had been raised from the dead. I mean, it was an incredible thing. A lot of people were coming with Jesus as he was approaching the top of the Mount of Olives. And they're all crying out, Hosanna, which means save now. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and so on and so forth. They're spreading their cloaks in the road before him and palm branches. And some are even 
waving palm branches and and it's a it's a exciting uh, moment and then something interesting happens apparently word had gotten out to the city that Jesus was coming and this great mob that came from Bethany is met by another great mob that comes surging out of the eastern gate down the Kidron Valley up the Mount of Olives and like two great tides coming together to make one great sea suddenly Jesus is engulfed in a sea of humanity and everyone's going wild they're cheering they're taking palm branches they're shouting Hosanna Hosanna to the son of David I mean it's a real scene the excitement and uh, the electricity of the moment is phenomenal and uh, we see it here and uh, this was the day that the Jews had waited thousands of years for remember now put yourself in their place for a second I mean, everything that you've been waiting for. I mean, it would be like if, you know, we found out tonight Jesus is coming. If we, of course, we wouldn't know that. But if we could somehow know he was coming tonight, think about it. How long we've waited for that moment. See, and they were waiting thousands of years as a people for the coming of Messiah. And now they believe the moment had come. I mean, these folks were beside themselves with excitement, with joy, with, they were just going crazy. Uh, worshiping him and screaming out Hosanna save now save now and so on and so forth how did Jesus respond to all this excitement and joy directed toward him well it says in Luke's gospel that when he got to the top of the Mount of Olives and he saw Jerusalem laid out before him he actually began to weep aloud in Luke chapter 19 this is the parallel passage again the triumphal entry in verse 41 it says now as he drew near he saw the city and wept over it saying if you had known even you especially in this your day the things that make for your peace but now they are hidden from your eyes for the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation why did Jesus weep I mean wasn't this the moment that he had been waiting for wasn't this that specific moment in his ministry in his life that everything had been kind of building towards his hour had now come. People would finally recognize him as Messiah. Up until this point when he would heal somebody or when he would do a miracle, he often said, don't tell anybody. Just go to the high priest and show yourself, you know. But don't tell anybody I'm, I'm Messiah. Uh, he wanted to keep it low key. But now was the time. If there was ever a time to proclaim him Messiah and openly worship him as such, this would have been it you would think he would have been excited. You, he would have been happy. But he wasn't. He wept. And you say, well, why? Well, very simply, because he knew the hearts of men. And Jesus knew that, first of all, the Jewish leadership had already rejected him, and they were the leaders. They would have to have accepted him as Messiah, and they did not. What about the people? Well, the people accepted him as Messiah on their terms. You see, they weren't really accepting him as Messiah because they were sick of their sin, because they wanted to be cleansed from their sin and to walk with God and holiness and love and unity. 
They were looking at Jesus as a meal ticket, as a social reformer, you know, a purely social Messiah, political Messiah, who was going to establish a kingdom, get Rome off my back, give to me peace, prosperity, health, and plenty, and basically set me up in a kingdom that was going to be free of disease, free of famine, free of social ills and things. See, in their mind, they were looking to him to be their political Messiah who was going to release them from all these social ills that they were suffering under. Uh, they weren't really accepting him for the Messiah he came to be, which was not a, uh, a political Messiah, but a spiritual Messiah. He came to save them not from Rome, but from their sins the first time, right? And when they were saying, Hosanna, they weren't saying, give us salvation. They were saying, save us from Rome. See, unless we understand that, we miss the point. They were looking to him in a very selfish way, like a lot of people still do today, you know? They're singing Jesus' praises, and don't forget, Jesus knew their hearts. He knew that the same crowd who was yelling, Hosanna now, four days from now, we're going to be yelling, crucify him. He knew their hearts just like today, just like people today. When people think Jesus is going to give them what they want, they sing his praises, they, you know, they, they're, they're only too willing to shout his praises and to, to cry Hosanna and, and blessed is the Lord and all these other things. But when he doesn't perform the way they want him to or expect him to, then it's like, get this man, I will not have this man rule over me. And, you know, and basically the same deal that happened here, crucify him, get him away. We're not going to let him rule over us kind of a thing. If he won't rule over me the way I want him to, then I'm not going to let him rule over me at all. And that's basically what was going on here. Uh, in their minds, it was just purely selfish uh, kind of a thing. No repentance, no wanting to really get right with God. It was just purely political. Set the kingdom up. I want to be prime minister. I want prosperity. And how many people are following Jesus Christ today because, again, they believe he's going to prom he promises them peace, prosperity, health. Um, and many of those same people, when they don't get what they expect the Lord to give them, they walk away. And that's very sad. And that's what was going on here. As I said, it really wasn't the triumphal entry as our Bibles entitled it. It was more like the tearful entry. Here comes Jesus presenting himself as Messiah, as King. But he's rejected. He knows that the religious, the Jewish leadership had pretty much already just basically rejected him. And as he comes to the top of the Mount of Olives, he sees the city stretched out in front of him, and he begins to cry. He begins to weep. He says, look, you don't know how many times I wanted to gather you under my wings as a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. Uh, you don't know how I wanted to love you and all. But now these things are hidden from you. And he saw into the future 38 years. He saw the Romans besieging the city, surrounding it. Titus Vespasian, uh, the Roman general, leading the armies of Rome to besiege the city of Jerusalem. Uh, he wiped out a million six hundred thousand Jews. Uh, many of them took refuge in the temple. So he set the temple on fire to, to kill them. And as he did, the heat got so intense it melted the gold in the ceiling, which ran down uh, between the, the uh, cracks of the stones and all. And so to get the gold out from the cracks of the temple walls, they literally dismantled the temple stone by stone and threw it uh, into the valley there, fulfilling the prophecy of Jesus, not one stone should be left upon another, but all will be thrown down. And so, and Jesus sees this. He sees all this coming about. He knows that what's ahead for these people. 
And he's weeping. And the Greek is a loud wailing. He's wailing. He's weeping out loud over his people because he knows that in a very short time, the judgment of God is going to fall upon them. All because of what? Because of Luke 19, verse 44. Because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now that's a very important statement. Because Jesus was basically holding them responsible for not knowing prophecy. Do you know that God has filled his word, one quarter of it, with prophecy? And God basically said, I'm telling you things before they happen. So that when they do come to pass, that you know that I'm God. And this is my word. For only I know the end from the beginning. Only I can tell you things before they come to pass and be right every single time. In fact, if anyone comes to you in my name and prophesies anything, just one thing that doesn't come to pass, they're a false prophet, don't pay any attention to them. God knows what's going to happen. God isn't guessing about the future. And God knew that if he was going to stay in the realm of the spirits, invisible, and that to know him we would have to approach him by faith, not by sight. But also he would obviously in his infinite wisdom knew there was a other side of the spirit realm which was evil. Satan and his demons which also were invisible and also could move around in darkness. In other words because our senses of course only work in the three-dimensional world we live in. We have no capacity to see into the spirit realm. We don't know what's going on. We don't know how we're being maybe manipulated by demons at times who make us think that maybe we're hearing from God or God is leading us when in fact He's not, right? And God knew that we were no match for the spirit realm because we had no capacity to, to see what they were up to or to tell error, heresy, from God speaking His truth and Satan coming in with a lie. We had no capacity to know when God was speaking and when Satan was, or when Satan was speaking unless God gave us His word to tell us what he was saying what to be on guard against, some of the ways the enemy would try to trip us up. You know what I'm saying? God gave us his word to be the thing that would guide us. God speaking to us from the spirit realm, giving us a divine message in the, in the physical realm of things that are going on behind the scenes, things that we're not aware of, that he would then alert us to these things that we would not be deceived, right? Telling us to stay away from certain things. Deuteronomy 18. Stay away from all those who call up the dead, all those who uh, conjure spells, all those who are into divination or uh, are mediums and so on and so forth. God is saying, these are not from me, these are from the enemy, and they will deceive you. And then because God knew that Satan would also try to give the world a message claiming to be from God. And of course, there are other groups that have the things like the Koran and other groups that have holy books. But God, knowing that, also incorporated into his word prophecy. And that would be the thing that would let us know that this is God's book. Apart from all the other holy books floating around out there, how do we know this one is from God? Because God tells us things before they happen, that when they do come to pass, we know this is his word and that he is God. God had told Israel a lot of things that were going to happen, a lot of things that related to Messiah. And God held them responsible accountable and responsible for understanding those things and acting accordingly on those prophecies. Way back in Daniel chapter 9, and of course most of you obviously know already, very famous 
prophecy that God gave to Daniel. It's called the 70-week prophecy of Daniel. But basically in Daniel 9, verse 24, the angel said to Daniel, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. So 70 weeks. In the, he in the Hebrew, when we think of weeks in the English, we think of seven days. In the Hebrew mind, in their way of thinking, when you use the word shabuim in the Hebrew, for, which was the word for week, it could mean a week of days or a week of years. I mean, it would be equally true in their mind. You'd have to look at the context to determine, well, are we talking about days here or years? Now, when the angel says to Daniel, 70 weeks are determined, are set aside. God has taken 70 weeks to deal specifically with Israel. Uh, the word there is the the word for weeks there is used in, with regard to years. So Daniel is or the angel is saying, look, 77 year periods are determined for your holy people, or excuse me, your people and for your holy city. So this is dealing with Israel to finish its transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, to anoint, to, excuse me, to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the, the going forth of the, of the command to restore and to build Jerusalem, not the temple, uh, but Jerusalem. People get confused because they, they try to plug in the temple there and it, it doesn't work. It's Jerusalem. To restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, or a total of 69 seven-year periods. The streets shall be built again, and the wall even in troublous, uh, troublesome times. And, and basically, what the angel is saying is this. Let me just kind of paraphrase for you. He said, look, when the command goes forward to rebuild Jerusalem and its walls, start counting. From that point, seven, 69 seven-year periods consecutive are going to pass. Now, a year back then was a 360-day year, okay? So that's important, too. 69 seven-year periods are going to pass from that moment, that command, to the coming of Messiah. Well, we know from history that Artaxerxes gave the command to Nehemiah to go ahead and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Remember Nehemiah? How he was burdened for his people. He was all the way in Persia, and word had come back that the pilgrims that had gone the settlers that had gone back from the Babylonian captivity now had been there for about 70 years, it was still a mess. The city was in ruins still. The walls had not been rebuilt. And, and, and it was just a mess. Nehemiah was so burdened for his people that he began to weep and to pray and to fast, to cry out to God to be merciful to his people. And finally, God raised up Nehemiah himself to be the one to go back to, to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and the walls. Well, he went to Artaxerxes because Nehemiah was a cupbearer before the king. He went to Artaxerxes and Artaxerxes saw that he was sad one day and he asked him about it. Well, why are you so sad? And, and Nehemiah prayed real quick and said, well, because how can I be happy when the city of my people lies in ruins and my people are scattered and so on and so forth? And Artaxerxes says, well, what would you like me to do for you? He said, well, I want to go back. I want to help my people and I need lumber. I need I need for you to give letters to the to the uh, keepers of, of your, the king's forest to send lumber that we might rebuild the walls and things. And so Artaxerxes gave Nehemiah the command to go on March 14th, 445 B.C. 
That was the starting point. And if you add those 69 seven-year periods, which add up to 483 years, if you add it together from that point on, and uh, Sir Robert Anderson was the first one who actually put this together. He was a, um, a head of Scotland Yard, and he was, uh, from what I understand, was knighted for his work on this. He got the Royal Observatory uh, to confirm the dates. And he was the one who first put it together and said if you add those years, which figure out to 173,880 days, if you add it to March 14th, 445 B.C., and you got to adjust for leap years, and there's some other things you got to do that doesn't make it all that easy to do, it brings you out to April 6, 32 A.D., which is the day that we, we call Palm Sunday, the day that Jesus Christ rode into Jerusalem and presented himself as Messiah the King. Uh, this was the day he was waiting for. Remember, he would not let them proclaim him to be king. He was waiting for a very specific day, the day of their visitation, the day when Messiah would visit his people and proclaim himself or allow himself to be proclaimed as king. This was a very important moment. They should have known this. I mean, they searched the scriptures daily, Jesus said to the Pharisees, because in them, he said, they, they believed they had eternal life, but everything in them points to me you're still blind. You don't. You won't come to me, but I might give you the very life you're seeking to receive. Uh, Jesus Christ was holding them accountable for not knowing the prophecy. They should have known this was the day. It was prophesied five centuries earlier. I mean, they should have known this. Now, it's true that Jesus didn't come probably like they expected Messiah to come. What did they think Messiah was going to do? Conquer Rome. Establish a kingdom, right? Whenever a king came into a city to conquer it, he always rode in on a white stallion. If you saw a king with a big group of guys and he was riding a white stallion, you knew you were in trouble. Lock the doors. We're in for it because he's coming as a conquering conqueror. If a king wanted to come into a city and really not to conquer, but really to declare peace to it, make a treaty or whatever, he would oftentimes come riding in on a donkey. Now, Jesus came the first time not as a conquering hero, but as the Prince of Peace, right? Riding a donkey, which was a symbol of peace. He didn't come to conquer Rome. He came to conquer sin. He came to deliver his people, not from Rome, but from the power of sin and death and from Satan, see? He came as the Prince of Peace to make peace between man and God. See, man had, in the garden, man had separated himself from God, right? God and man became at odds with each other. But at Calvary, Jesus Christ reconciled that. And he brought peace between God and man for all who would receive him as king. Now, the second time he comes, he is going to come as a conquering hero, isn't he? To take vengeance on his enemies and to establish his kingdom. Revelation 19 said he's going to come with a vesture dipped in blood. He's going to tread the nations uh, that have uh, rebelled against him in the winepress of the wrath of the fierceness of Almighty God. And what's he going to be riding? A white horse. Revelation 19. Uh, it's an awesome picture to see the Lord coming to the world, not now as a meek, sacrificial lamb who came to die in meekness and humility, now as a roaring lion of the tribe of Judah coming to this world to take vengeance on all of those, the day of grace is over when he comes, to take vengeance on all those who have refused to believe in him 
all those who have set themselves against God, hey, accept them as, as the Lamb of God and accept them as your Savior or one day you're going to stand before him as the Lion of the tribe of Judah and it's not going to be pleasant, believe me. Now, we look at this story with, you know, hindsight. Uh, we look back at these guys and we say, what a bunch of doofuses. I mean, why, why were they so blind to this? I mean, here the Lord has spoken to them. I hear he made it clear to them. They had the prophecies. Jesus did the miracles. I mean, how, how could they have missed this? What, what was going through their minds, you know? And we, we sometimes get irritated with the disciples because we're like they were so dull of hearing, so numb, you know, such blockheads at times. You want to just kind of shake them and say, guys, wake up. I mean, what are you doing? I mean, you know, don't you understand? Because they didn't get it either. I mean, he had told them that he was going to be going to Jerusalem not to conquer anybody, but to die. He had told them three times. Some of it has sunk in, but they were really pushing it out of their minds, I believe. I really felt, feel that they were so locked into this concept that he was going to give bring the kingdom. And they wanted it so bad. You know how when people really want to believe something, don't confuse me with the facts. I don't want to hear it. I know what I believe, and this is what I'm going to stick to. And I think the disciples were kind of like that. They knew Jesus had talked about dying and all, but they just couldn't bring themselves to believe it. So that when he started to ride up the Mount of Olives, they too were swept into the excitement of the moment, no doubt. Kingdom fever had, had exploded now. It was boiling over. People were excited. They were cheering. This was it. They expected him to go for it. And, of course, it didn't happen. And that was going to lead into a very another very important section where after he presents himself basically what happens is he's rejected he goes and sits he, he leaves the city goes back down the Kidron Valley over to the uh, the garden uh, there on the Mount of Olives and uh, basically uh, before he does that he says to them look uh, your house is left to you desolate and neither shall you see me anymore and see so you say blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord he walks out of the city, down the Kidron Valley, up the Mount of Olives, and there he sits down. Now his disciples are crushed. We'll get to this in a couple weeks. His disciples are crushed. What do you mean you're going away? I thought you were going to set the kingdom up. What are you talking about? You can't go away. And they're, they're crushed about it. And so they, a few of them walk over to where he is now, and they sit down and they say, Well, Lord, when will these things be? And what will be the signs of your coming in the end of the age? And that launches into a very important discourse called, called the, uh, the Olivet Discourse, which we're going to get to in a couple of weeks. So hang on to that. But I, the whole thing is, is leading up to this, okay? And, and the thing you have to understand, though, lest we get too irritated with the disciples, you know, God had put over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament concerning Jesus Christ's first coming. About 333, I believe, prophecies in the Old Testament that are directly linked to his first coming where he would be born, right? How he would live, uh, how he would die, who, how he would be betrayed, how he would come entering into the city in his triumphal entry, and so on and so forth, how many pieces of silver he'd be betrayed for. All these things were given, one prophecy after another, and Jesus fulfilled them all. And don't think if he didn't, the Pharisees wouldn't have immediately jumped on him and said, you can't be the Messiah, you weren't born in Bethlehem, or you, weren't, you didn't fulfill this aspect of what Messiah was gonna do. They knew they couldn't. He fulfilled all those prophecies, yet they were still blind to his coming. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, he told the Pharisees and Sadducees, Matthew 16, 
verse 1. Then the Pharisees and Sadducees came testing him and asked him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. Now this is ridiculous. I mean, how much more has he got to do, right? He's already been raising the dead, feeding thousands of people with just a small amount of food, walking on water, turning water to wine, uh, healing the lame, and so on and so on. I mean, he, what, what else are they looking for? It was just hypocrisy. No matter what he did, they weren't going to believe. He knew that. And so he lets them have it. He said to them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. Do you ever hear the old saying, uh, red sky at night is a sailor's delight. Red sky in the morning, sailor take warning. That was kind of the same thing, you know. They would look up into the sky and see red sky at night and say, hey, it looks like a nice day tomorrow. Or in the morning they would see the red sky and they'd say, whoa, looks like bad weather today. And Jesus said, you hypocrites, you can look up into the sky and using the signs in the sky discern or predict the weather for the day, yet all the signs of my coming are all around you and you're so blind and so ignorant to that, you, you can't even see what day this is. And he goes on to say then, A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. In other words, the only sign you're going to get now is the sign of my resurrection. And that didn't convince him either. See, but that was the last thing he was going to show them to prove who he was. In Matthew 24, he said... In verse 37, But as the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will be the coming, so also will the, uh, the coming of the Son of Man be. And basically, in those two passages, what Jesus Christ is basically indicting Israel with, what he's basically saying to them is this. He said, you know, all the signs are there. I fulfilled all the prophecies. All the signs are there for my coming. And yet, you're totally oblivious to who I am. And you know what I'm saying? They didn't accept him, even though all the signs were there. He did all the things he was supposed to do. And Jesus went on to say that as it's going to be as in the days of Noah during the second coming. And what will that be? People are going to be eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, going to be business as usual. And many people are going to be oblivious to the fact that Jesus Christ is about to come with judgment. And they're oblivious to that fact. Just as the Jews were oblivious to Jesus' first coming, even though they had all those prophecies, the Bible has over 500 prophecies concerning Jesus' second coming. And you know what? people are just as blind today as Israel was back then. And you know what? Those who are supposed to be believers now. We're not just talking about the general population. We know that they're blind. Okay, They're eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage. We expect that from the world. They don't know any better. They're not enlightened to these things, right? But when you see the church of Jesus Christ eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage. Not that those things are wrong, but the problem is so consumed with life and everyday things of life that they don't see the times in which we're living. That to me is really sad. That to me is really sad. When people who claim to know Jesus Christ don't know prophecy, 
can look around, and I've heard Christians say, well, I think Jesus is coming back. I know what the Bible says he is, but I think maybe a thousand years, and, or maybe 10,000 years. Well, maybe, but I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, you know, the signs are all there. I mean, look around. I mean, one of the main signs that God gave us in the Old Testament to show us we were getting very close to the return of Messiah was the rebirth of the nation Israel, which took place in 1948, right? In fact, that was such a momentous thing that because for, for years and years and years, Bible scholars believe that that was all allegorical, those prophecies about Israel. No nation has ever been out of its land for almost 2,000 years and has been gathered back in their land to become a nation again. That's ridiculous. It must be allegorical somehow. Well, on May 14th, 1948, obviously it was proven it wasn't allegorical, and a lot of people began to look at their Bibles again because all of a sudden, now wait a minute, you mean God was being literal there? Yeah. And people began to really take a second look. God also said, when I gather you back into the land the second time, you're going to no longer be two nations, but one. Of course, remember the kingdom split after Solomon's death. And it was the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And that's how it was until they both went into exile and basically were scattered and all. Um, but when they came back in 1948 and established the nation again, uh, they debated, well, should we be two, na two kingdoms or one? And they overwhelmingly decided, no, no, we need to be one nation. You know, uh, And God said they were going to again speak pure Hebrew. Hebrew was a dead language, kind of like Latin. No dead language has ever been revived again to be the common tongue of, of a nation of people. Well, when Israel became a nation again, they began to speak Hebrew again. And that was such an incredible thing that all over the world people were taking note of how incredibly unique that was. That never has happened before in the history of mankind. So God was doing all kinds of unique things to tell people, hey, we're getting close. We see things like just in our day, the advent of credit. I mean, the Bible talks about a man of sin coming, the Antichrist, who's going to take the whole world, make the whole world take a number. Without that number, they won't be able to buy or sell. Up until this century, that was a who ever heard of anyone buying or selling with just a number? I mean, do you realize that just in this last century that we've been living, really, we have become so enlightened, basically, to these prophecies because we we are because of the technology, we're understanding things that a hundred years ago they had no clue to. They had no idea what was going on. Even Daniel, when he was writing down these prophecies of the end times, at one point he said, Lord, what does it mean? He, he didn't even know. He was, he was the, the, the vehicle God was using to write these, these things down, but he didn't know what they meant. And the Lord says, Daniel, it's not for you to know. Write it down, seal it up, go your way. In the end, knowledge shall be increased, men shall go to and fro. Then I'm gonna, I'll, people are going to know. They're going to understand what these things mean. And we are those people. I'm convinced of that. Uh, the prophecy again of Daniel about the ten nations coming together to be the final world empire. For a long time we've believed that was probably talking about Western Europe, you know, economic alliance there, the EEC and all coming together, the ten nations. Now we're wondering if possibly at one point the whole globe is going to be partitioned off into ten regions and that will be the final kingdom of the Antichrist. That could be as time progresses, even we're getting clear understandings of certain prophecies because, you know, we're, we're working with limited information. But every day, as we read the newspapers and world events unfold, all of a sudden it's becoming clearer 
and clearer and clearer, and we're seeing it. Just things that, again, we take for granted that people 100 years ago had no clue about. Uh, in Revelation 11, when it talks about the two witnesses who are killed, and the whole world watches their bodies lying in the streets of Jerusalem, how can the whole world watch an event taking place in one specific location in the world? How could that be? Well, obviously today it's, we, we know exactly how it can be. With telecommunications, we routinely watch events taking place in one area of the world, and people watch it all over the globe. I mean, but you have to understand, this until the advent of computers, credit, telecommunications, and a lot of other things, there could, Jesus couldn't have come back. It just wasn't time. And all these things are falling into place. Now, the, one of the very interesting things is, of course, it says the, the man of sin is going to cause the whole world to take a number, right? On their right hand or in their forehead. And they can't buy or sell without this number and all. Well, we all know that credit has got a lot of benefits, but it's got some drawbacks. You can lose your credit card or your number can be stolen or whatever. You know, people can use it. Maybe some of you have had that happen, you know. Uh, there's some flaws there. But it's very convenient, obviously, too. So we're not going to do away with it. But let's figure out a better way to use it. And so today we have the technology. In fact, they're using it right now, right now with animals. They have machines that can shoot a little, uh, which is, it's, a, it's a silicon chip, you know, encased in, in glass, I believe, uh, under the skin of an animal's neck. And they have a scanner, and it's encoded into this chip is the animal's name, owner's name, uh, where he lives, phone number, so on and so forth. Maybe any kind of updated medical information on the animal, current shots and whatever it might be. So if this animal is lost and the, and the, um, the people of the city picks up the animal, they can run the scanner over the animal's uh, neck and all the information comes up on the scanner. The owner's name, where to contact him, and so on. They have it right now. It's nothing for them to develop a chip that would slip under the skin of your hand or under your skin of your forehead while you're forward. Well, peep, some people don't have hands. They've been lost, okay? You're not going to lose your head. <laughs> so that would be a good alternative, right? And all you would do then is when you wanted to buy, they take a scanner and scan over your hand or over your forehead. There's your number. It's, it's with you. You can't lose it. Nobody can copy it. It's, a, it's really a great system when you think about it. It's the ideal system. It just happens to be the system the Antichrist is going to use. And um, it's very interesting that we're living in the last days. And when I see Christians who are so oblivious to these things, I wonder if Jesus were, were here right now, if he wouldn't say to some of the people in his church, what's wrong with you? You can discern the weather. You can, you can forecast certain economic trends by looking at the data. But why is it you're so blind to my coming when it's all there in my word? And no, I haven't told you the day or the hour, but I've certainly let you know the times and the seasons. And you shouldn't be ignorant to these things. We should be ready. We shouldn't be eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. In other words, we shouldn't be just so consumed with our daily activities that we're blind to the fact that Jesus Christ is coming and he's coming soon. And now is the time more than ever to get serious, to get on our knees, to get serious about being a witness for him to get our priorities straight, to not be entangled with the things of this world, but to be totally sold off for Him, to be a light because the darkness is intense uh, and it's going to get worse. More and more as we progress, things are going to get worse and worse. Uh, we have to be ready. We have to sink our roots deep into the 
word of God because the winds uh, of false doctrine are already blowing, but they're going to get blowing more and more intense. And to stand up for the truth, you're going to be in, more and more in the minority, I'm convinced. And more and more these fence-sitters that claim to be Christians that are not, well, it's like oil and water. The church right now is mixed together, and sometimes it's hard to see the oil from the water, the true from the false. But more and more as persecution begins to come, you're going to see the true church separating from the false church. The false church is going to be going off into the various winds of doctrine. You know, when the Antichrist comes and he's got his evil sidekick, the false prophet is preaching this global, ecumenical, you know, religious message that the whole world is buying into. A lot of these people that claim to be Christians but are really not, have gone to church all their lives but really don't know the truth, they're going to be swept into it. Especially if they don't follow the Antichrist, they're going to be killed. That's a powerful motivation to follow this guy. And only the true are going to stand up and go, hey, I know what the word says. I'm not going to take his number. I'm not going to be taking any marks or if I, ha if I have to die, so be it. But I know what the Word says, and man, I'm not doing it. The days are evil, and, and it's getting worse and worse. And, and I, as I look at the triumphal entry, and we look at it from a historical standpoint, there's a lot to be learned on that level. But you know, as you look at it in our context, you know, and how it relates to us. Well, you know, Jesus came once back then. He's about to come again. And it seems like we're just as much in darkness many times as the people back then were. Um, don't don't be that way. Be children of light. Um, and let's really pray that God would help us in these last days to really get on fire. And I'll tell you, I, I really covet your prayers for our fellowship, that God would really begin to impress upon our hearts, really begin to burden us for the lateness of the hour, you know, uh, how near His return is, how great the work is, that we not, you know, we not become dull to it or uh, indifferent or desensitized to the fact that we've been talking about Jesus coming back for so long it almost doesn't seem you know it's like something that we believe is going to happen but we can't imagine it happening anytime soon but yet it could happen today you know so we have to remember that you know we have to pray that God would help us to really get serious and and get the message out and uh, man my prayer has been Lord I know that revival comes through prayer and the kind of prayer that brings revival down is not a half-hearted, jump into bed, 45 seconds prayer before I drift off to sleep. The kind of prayer that brings revival is the kind of prayer that Nehemiah prayed. He wept, he fasted, he mourned for many, many, many days. And suddenly God began to answer. And uh, that's a Holy Spirit burden kind of prayer, you know. Uh, at our men's prayer night, we've had some great turnouts we've had just a few um and one of the nights i told the guys i said look good intentions only go so far everyone has every christian has good intention every christian knows prayer is good and right and wants to pray i believe and some even motivate themselves enough to come out and fight through a couple sessions because prayer's tough you know prayer's tough you know but they fall away Good intentions will only take you so far. A Holy Spirit burden. When the Holy Spirit has gotten a hold of your heart and He is burdening you for souls, you can't get off your knees. I mean, you are so burdened. And I was telling the guys, I went through a period about eight years ago. Uh, there's been other periods, but this one really sticks out in my mind. Where I had just recently gotten back from California from a pastor's conference. 
And I remember being in my house one afternoon, uh, and I wasn't feeling well. I don't know if I was just, it was, uh, I had just gotten back, and back then the jet lag, even though it was only a two-hour flight, used to hit me for a couple of days kind of hard, you know. I remember I was laying on the couch, you know, and all of a sudden it's like the Lord just spoke to me and gave to me an incredible amount of energy. He just, I just felt like he was saying to me, there's plenty of time to sleep. Now's the time to pray and to work, you know. And all of a sudden, I had this overwhelming burden to go pray. So what I did was I started taking long walks. I mean, you know, miles and praying for an hour, hour and a half, sometimes two hours, you know, just praying. I just couldn't. And it wasn't like I was, wow, I got to go and pray today. Actually, I was rushing as fast as I could to finish my other stuff because I had to get out there and pray. It was a burden that the Holy Spirit gave to me. I couldn't stop praying. I'd go to the forest and walk down those paths where the, the guys ride their bikes and, and roller skate. I'd walk miles just praying. You know, it went on for months. And all of a sudden the burden then lifted. Not that prayer should ever stop, but this burden was for a specific period of time because God was using it to set up something in our church, I'm convinced, that he wanted prayer for. And I probably wasn't the only one he burdened, but I know I was burdened. And I know, man, I couldn't stop praying. And that's the kind of burden we have to pray that God would give to us. That Holy Spirit burden for souls and for the kingdom that says, Lord, I don't want to get off my knees. I want to, I want to, just, I can't wait to just get, I want to have the kind of a heart that just says, I can't wait to get on my knees. I can't wait to get home from work so I can get on my knees. I got to pray. I have to pray. Got to pray. Remember what Gene Kelly, got to dance. Got to pray, man. Got to pray. That's, that's a Holy Spirit kind of burden. That's what we need. God help us. I really pray that he gives us that burden. Only that kind of prayer, I believe, brings revival. And we need revival desperately. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Again, Lord, such a, a light to our path and so on. And Father, we just, we know that our Savior is coming soon. And we just pray, Lord, that we would be ready that we would understand the times in which we're living, that we would not be oblivious or blind to the day of our visitation, Lord, basically. That we would not be like the Pharisees and Sadducees, so, so able to predict the weather by the signs in the sky, but unable to see Messiah when he came based on the signs that uh, of your word. And I just pray, Lord, that you would help your church to wake up to recognize that you are coming soon. Your coming is near, even at the door. And that, Lord, now is the time to wake up out of our sleep and to get serious and to be children of the day and of the light and to not walk in the darkness or like those that are drunken and, uh, and, and dull of heart. But that, Lord, you would burden your people with a holy burden, a Holy Spirit burden for souls that would drive us to our knees and so cause us, Lord, to be so burdened for prayer that we just can't stop praying. And I pray, Lord, that our prayer meetings would be so full that we'd have to move into bigger facilities and that, Father, you would begin a great work in this church and through this church and throughout this land of ours through your people. But may it begin right now, Lord, with prayer. Burden us, Lord. We need that Nehemiah kind of burden that you gave to him that caused him to be so burdened for his people that he wept 
He fasted, he prayed, he mourned for many, many, many days. Give us that kind of burden, Lord. And then open the doors that we might be used by you to touch hearts for Jesus. Father, we thank you now. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.